This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, today uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach in our last meeting. How many of you have been to all the meetings, of these meetings, my seminar? All right, several of you. How many of you, this is your very first one? All right, so you, you, you weren't in here yesterday when I gave the lecture about seminar hopping, that we don't want to do seminar hopping, right? Um, but anyway, I'm glad you're here, and I want to encourage you to get the rest of the recordings. Just a reminder that I think Little Light Studios, did anybody go to the booth and look for the DVD? Did they have some? They did? Okay. So they do have some at the booth. Um, I don't make money off these. They produce them, and they take the money to the ministry, but um, uh, it is this talk. I have increased it this time, uh, but you can do that. I also have here a, um, a sheet. Some of you may have signed up yesterday. If you didn't and you would like to have my slides, I'll be glad to give them to you. I can email them to you in a Dropbox format. Um, and you can click on the link and download them. So at the end of the seminar, come write your name and your email address, and I'll get those out to you in the next couple weeks here, okay? Um, Let me see what else I want to say to you before we go, uh, before we move on. I'm not totally with it, so you just have to bear with me, amen, Uh, being sick. All right, so what we're going to talk about today is going to be slightly different. Yesterday, we looked at... Um, Bible evidence, spirit of prophecy evidence, and scientific evidence that reveals to us that competitive sports may not necessarily be, or are not, are not, I should say, God's ideal for his people, yes? In fact, they don't build character, they typically cause a decline in character. I mean, we were here and we saw that yesterday, right? And for, for those of you that were here for all four of those sessions, how many of you, when you saw all that evidence, would agree with that statement? I mean, you, you find it. Even though it's, it's a very uh, ingrained thing in our culture, um, it's very popular today. It's un-American if you're not into sports. But we're not interested in as much in American culture or Western culture as we are heaven's culture. Amen. And we want to be prepared for heaven. We don't want to be uh, worried about popularity in, in our culture today because this culture is a very passing fad. It's only temporary. And we want to be prepared for heaven. Amen? And we want to uh, be practicing God's ideal, not just when we get to heaven, but when? But now. And uh, it was kind of quiet for much of the sessions yesterday. Um, I think because a lot of people had conviction, and one brother that was sitting up here, he said, we don't want to, I said, you're so quiet, he says, he says, because we don't want to accept it, (laughs) and, uh, but I I could sense that people's hearts were moved, and that the Lord is calling us to something higher, something better, he's not calling us to what is good or better, but what is what, what is best, and that's what he wants, so what we're going to do today uh, is very different. Uh, for the first 90% of the talk, you're not going to hear me talk about competitive sports. But we're going to talk about an experience that our church had in something called the 1893 General Conference. How many of you have heard of that? Or, or you've read about it, or you've studied about it. And we're going to talk about a great revival that took place in the church a great outpouring of God's Spirit. There were people who were confessing their sins, they were repenting, and they were rejoicing in the Lord. And then something happened that deviated them from that, and Satan sought to fill the void of what God had given them with something else. And we're going to see what that something else was, okay? So, I promise you, by the time we get to the end, it is going to be connected to competitive sports, okay? So just bear with me. All right, well, let's have prayer together, and um, 
I'm hoping that at the end of this we'll have some time for questions. Um, if not, I'll be happy to stick around and chat with you personally, and I'm always happy to do that. I'll stay here as long as you need me to. But let's have prayer together, and then we'll dive in, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study together. We ask your Holy Spirit to be with us now as we guide, are guided and looked, are looking at the history of our church and how competitive sports have had an impact on it. And we ask your special blessing in Jesus' name, amen. And let me just say this, that in our last sessions, we've looked at the Bible, we've looked at the spirit of prophecy, we've looked at science, so we're not actually going to even have Bible in this one. This is going to be basically recounting an experience of God's people, of the Adventist people uh, throughout history. Make sense? All right, so uh, most, actually everything that I'm taking from this talk comes from this book, uh, wounded in a house of his friends. You can buy this book here. I think they're selling them down at the booths. And I would highly recommend all of you to buy this book and read it. There's another book called uh, The Return of the Latter Rain. And it's a blue book. It's thicker than this one. I would encourage you to buy that book and read it. And I think he's actually come out with a volume too. Excellent, excellent material. And when I was reading this book, I mean, my heart was just jumping out of my chest. I was just rejoicing. And I was having revival, and it was just, it's just a powerful experience. It's an amazing book, so I want to encourage you. But primarily, I'm going to be looking through chapters 7 to 9, all right? So the 1893 General Conference, this was about four or five years after something that some of you may know of called the 1888 Conference. How many of you are familiar with that? If you're not familiar with that, I want to encourage you to get yourself familiar with it. At that conference, there were two gentlemen named A.T. Jones and um, E.J. Wagner who preached messages on the righteousness of Christ and our need to have that experience with him, okay? Our need to have the righteousness of Christ in place of our own unrighteousness. So that is our only ticket to heaven. You cannot obey God until you've received the righteousness of God, of Christ, you cannot do truly good works until you've received the righteousness of Christ, yes? And that we should look to him. And so there were many people at that conference, there were some who, who accepted those messages, and that's the foundation of our faith, is it not? Uh, I mean, the foundation of our faith is not just the Sabbath, but the core of every doctrine and every belief that we have has to be the righteousness of Christ, amen? Yes? And so some people accepted that message at the um, 1888 conference. Many people rejected it, and some were undecisive. And for several years after that, there were many people who resisted that message and even fought against the message. Not just did they just say, oh, well, I don't believe that. They went on about their merry way, but they actually countered and fought against the message, Okay. Well, in 1893, there was another general conference session where many of the same people were gathered together again, and God essentially rebuked them for rejecting the message, okay, through Ellen White and, and through others. And A.T. Jones once again came, and he was delivering a number of messages that were similar to the ones of, of 1888. The difference was, at this session, Virtually every person accepted those messages, okay? And there was a great revival that took place. In fact, this was the 13th session of the General Conference. It took place in February 17, 1893, or beginning. Uh, there were 120 delegates from several countries, and it was one of the greatest sessions ever held in our church. And so I'm going to show you some of the uh, statements that were made there um, if by A.T. Jones and others, um, and this comes straight out of the book, but there, were, there was a great deal of powerful preaching that revealed the true condition and the true heart, nature of the hearts of the people there. And it was amazing, and people's hearts were broken. Notice what he says here. He says, many who have a nominal connection with it, this is a quote from Elder A.T. Jones, with the truth do not fully appreciate it. If they did, there would be an abandonment of self, a laying hold of divine power, and a seeking for a living connection with God that would take no denial. 
We pray that this may be more and more impressed upon every heart. This experience of what? What is it? Abandonment of who? Of self and a laying hold of divine power, seeking to have a living connection with the Almighty. Amen? How many of you recognize that we are destitute unless we have that experience? Many of us, I think, even in the church today, we just don't realize that we hear people say it and we're just like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I fear that we have the same experience that they did where we are not accepting it. Then he goes on, he says, brethren, I'm going to show you a lot of these statements. Brethren, if Christ is dwelling in a man's heart, he will find works to do. Don't be anxious about works. Find the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will find work more than you can do. Amen? And so, are works important? Yes, but not until you truly experience who? Until you truly experience Christ. Your works cannot save you, but they can help save someone else. Then he says, there has been a one great trouble with us as individuals, and it has been plainly set before us in the Laodicean message. We have felt ourselves so rich and increased with goods that we have not realized our need of God. Oh, that a sense of soul poverty might come to every heart. That is the redeeming quality, brethren. He says that we need to have a sense of our own poverty. And people will scoff and they'll say, well, you know, I don't come to church to get beat up and to have the preacher tell me how bad I am. And that's the attitude of today's culture. When the reality is that that's actually exactly what we need. That's exactly what we need. We need to, they, people say, well, I, I come to church to feel good. Well, you can only feel good in Christ when you've first felt bad. Right? Because you have to feel badly about your current condition. And if you don't feel badly about your condition without Christ or without the fullness of His presence in your life, then you're not going to ever fully be able to experience the peace of Christ. Does that make sense? You have to recognize your true condition. And the problem with many, the, the reason that many struggle, the reason, reason that many have such a difficult time is that they're unwilling to see their true condition. We're unwilling to make a, a painful detachment from uh, our own self-dependence and our own self-righteousness. But that's exactly what we need. Give me one second. I'm going to turn on my clock here. Here we go. All right. Then he goes on. He says, our goodness, our wisdom, our ability are nothing but God can work and will work with a heart that is emptied of self, a heart that has made no reserve, one that has yielded all to God and laid all upon His altar. How many can say amen? amen? That is what God will do when we are willing to lay all down before Him. And we can sit around and we can... We can, we can scoff at that, or we, and we can, we can find all kinds of reasons why that we're, we don't meet that condition, but the reality is that we all are in that situation, and we all need to have that experience. He says, he goes on, what is our condition? You well know enough that our efforts have not been, not accomplished much. Now listen to this. See if this has not been your experience at one time. Everyone has tried to do his very best you know yourself that it was the most discouraging thing that you ever tried to do in this world. You tried with all your heart to live right, but guess what? You failed. You failed. You tried all, with all your strength to do what God wanted you to do, and you what? Failed. Not once, not twice, but many times. And notice what he says here. He says, you have sat down and cried because you could not do well enough to risk the judgment. How many of you have had that kind of experience before? Where you just wept and you were just like, I'm just not good enough. And the reality is that though that's bad news, it's good news if you recognize it. Amen? It's good news if you recognize it, that you're not good enough. 
He says, we ourselves were able to see our nakedness when we had tried our best to cover ourselves. Now the Lord, now listen to this, now the Lord wants us to be covered so that the shame of our nakedness shall not appear. How many can say amen today? That the Lord wants us to be covered. He doesn't want us to be naked. He wants us to have His perfect righteousness and character that will stand the test of the judgment. Let us accept it from Him as the free, blessed gift it is. In other words, your righteousness being not good enough is not, it's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing if we're willing to open the heart most fully to receive His own righteousness. If we, if we recognize that our own works are not and have never been good enough. You see, friends, we need not only repent of our bad works. You need not repent just simply of, uh, of, of losing your temper and uh, overeating or, or lying or whatever it is, but we also need to repent of our attempts at good works done in our own strength. Why? Because Jesus could have done it a thousand times better, infinitely better. He would have done it with perfection. And if we did anything with our best ability and our own strength, it still falls short of Him. And the reality is that's just the condition that we have. That's just the truth. Now we can say, well, you just make me feel bad. Well, good. We need to feel bad. We need to recognize it. And if, if we keep trying to push that off, then our eyes are being blinded by the enemy. The Lord wants... Now, now, so, so uh, A.T. Jones makes this appeal that, look, though you have this condition, God doesn't want you to remain there. Amen? He's willing to do something about it. He's willing to make a change in your life. He's willing to, to transform your heart and give you something better, something pure. He's willing to cover you with His own righteousness that you can indeed stand pure before Him. And you have to receive How do I receive it? I'm going to talk about it here in just a little bit. Now, W.W. W. Prescott, which was another gentleman present there, he also gave several talks. And here are some things that he said. Notice what he says. The Lord wants us to receive His Spirit right now. He wants our hearts to open all the time to receive it. He wants our hearts open how often? All the time. Not just when I come to GYC. Not just when I'm in the meeting. Not just on church on Sabbath morning. But how often does He want our hearts open to the Spirit of God? All the time. That means I have to make a conscious choice to open my heart to God all the time. Then he goes on, he says, the heart is open. How, how is my heart open? How do I keep my heart open to the Spirit of God? It's open by confession and repentance of our sins on a regular basis. By a spirit of contrition. What does contrition mean? A brokenness, a recognizing of my need. And then notice what he says here. I love this phrase. When I first read this phrase, I just got excited. I jumped out of my chair. And notice what he says. And by a permanent sense of what? Unworthiness. If you ever think yourself worthy, you need only to take one glimpse at Jesus, and you will recognize how unworthy we are. And if I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, would I not have a permanent sense of my unworthiness, but His worthiness that can make me worthy. Amen? Now, we all are unworthy, but we're worthy in Him because His goodness, His greatness, His righteousness can make us worthy. Amen? But in and of ourselves, we have nothing to recommend to Him, to ourselves, or anyone else. Not by being lifted up when He gives us of His grace and power, Sometimes the Lord gives us a blessing, and then we get ourselves lifted up, right? We become boastful in that. And we are to receive the Spirit in that fullness and rejoice in the Lord all the time. Can you see, like at this conference, these were the sermons that were being preached. How powerful they were, amen? 
how powerful they were, and people's hearts began to be broken. So heartfelt confessions began to take place. It's very interesting that people began to recognize their brokenness. They began to recognize their poor state of, of, of standing before God. And they began to break down and confess their sins and pray that God would cleanse them and give them purity of heart and cover them with the righteousness of Jesus and fill him, them with his character. And there was an interesting thing that had taken place. There was a gentleman named Elder I.D. Van Horn. How would you like to have that name, right? And, uh, and the beard to go with it, right? And <coughs> Elder Horn... At the 1888 message, at the 1888 conference, when those messages were being delivered, he scoffed at them and rejected them. Then later in his room, he was with a bunch of other people who had rejected those messages. And they were beginning to make light of, and they were making sarcastic jokes and all kinds of nasty comments about A.T. Jones and others that were bearing those messages, and they were just basically criticizing and, and gossiping and attacking, right? And so they were in a private setting in a room where no one else was around, okay? Ellen White later writes a letter to Elder Horn, and she tells him everything that was said in the room. Because the Lord gave her a vision of what they were doing in that room. And she was telling him how displeased God was that he and others had been making light of a message that was intended to save their souls. This man was broken by that. And in 1893, he came back and he heard these messages again. And this was the confession that he made. Look what he says. I am now heartily ashamed of the part that I took in the merriment, satire, sarcasm, and wit that was indulged in by myself and others in Minneapolis. It was very wrong and displeasing to the Lord who witnessed it all. She told him that God had had an angel in the room was recording everything that they said. He was broken. He says, I see how much I have lost in these four years of darkness and unbelief. So from 1888 to 1893, he was basically in darkness and he didn't even realize it. Didn't even realize it. Could it be that some of us are at times in darkness and we don't even realize it, right? And, and, and so he says, I will now make haste and buy the gold, the white raiment, and the eye salve that I may stand before my fellow men, not in my own strength, but with the righteousness of Christ. I will walk softly before the Lord and will cherish His presence in my heart, that I may have power from Him who has all power to resist Satan, shun his snares, and gain the victory at last. And you can say amen. Isn't this exciting? This was one of many confessions of various people, I mean, I, I didn't put them all in here, but in the book it talks about many more, people who had experiences where they recognized that they were in a wrong way. And because of these messages that were preached, their hearts were broken and they began repenting, they began confessing and testifying of the Lord's goodness. What great mercy God had given to Elder Horn that he had been in such a way in 1888 for years, the Lord bore with him and in great mercy gave that experience to him again in 1893. Amen? Is the Lord merciful today? The Lord is kind, isn't he? He's good. Then he says this, repentance and confession are the only ways out of sin and darkness. How many would say amen? You know, I don't know that as a church in modern times, we have really had this kind of an experience. That is my fear. Maybe some individually, but I know about others. I know about as a whole. Notice this, Elder W.W. W. Prescott. You guys, you guys doing okay? I mean, it, to me, this is just powerful. Now, we're going to get to the, to the competition here in just a little bit, but bear with me here. But when we receive the righteousness of Christ in its fullness, right with that, 
comes the fullness of the Spirit and there is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now it is of no use for us to pray and pray for the Spirit apart from the righteousness and character of Christ. In other words, let me make this point, and this is the point that they made and we need to understand this, that if you're praying for the Holy Spirit and you're not praying that your character be changed, you're kind of wasting your time. Because if the Spirit of God is going to come into your heart and your heart's going to be open, there are going to be changes that will have to be made in your life. And those changes will be changes that you have no power or strength to do for yourself, but only changes that God himself can make in you. Are you with me? And when those changes are made and you see that God transforms your heart, you will have a testimony to bear to others of what God has done for you. Amen? And there will be a power in your life that is continue as long as you maintain that surrender and that willingness for the heart to be open through confession and repentance. Amen? He says, what can I say about this matter? Elder Prescott goes on, these things are as plain as A, B, and C. That righteousness is the gift of God. Amen? That all in the world he asks us to do is submit to the receiving of it. Amen? To open the door by confession and repentance. Amen? Closing every door to Satan. See, that's, that's a problem where many of us stumble. We say, oh yes, Lord Jesus, I want to open my heart to you. But at the same time, while we're trying to open the door to Christ, we are not willing to close the door to who? Satan. How do we close the door to Satan? Well, we resist the devil by submitting to God, right? But we cut off, we have to cut off the bridges to his world in our lives. Does that make sense? If there's, if, if you're, if you've got some kind of addiction or some kind of problem that you're always going to, you got a problem with, with, with boys, you got a problem with girls, you got to have that attention and affection that satisfies that heart thing for you, and you know that it's not right, what has to be done? It has to be cut off. And only the power of God can help you. You got a problem with pornography? By the grace of God, it has to be cut off. You have to close the doors to Satan. If I got a problem with pornography, what do I need to do? I need to maybe cut off my internet. I need to get rid of my computer. I need, I need to get rid of all the avenues that would link me to it and then replace it with good, yeah? And then plead with God moment by moment to give me the strength, yeah? And it's not always a momentary thing to give up these things. Sometimes it is a process. But yet at the same time, if we're going to open the heart to Christ, we must close the door to who? Satan. And then he says, opening the door to Christ and accepting Him in how? Simplicity. You recognize that Jesus does not make things complicated. We do. You understand that? It's, it's very simple. I'm going to talk about that a little bit on Sabbath. But the, sim the gospel is simple. The promises of God are simple. The promise of His power and strength are simple. Amen? And we need not make them complicated. Elder A.T. Jones called after several days of, of preaching these kind of messages. Elder Jones, on the last day, made, called people to decision. He said, the danger is that there will be some here who have resisted this for years who will now fail to come to the Lord in a way to receive it and fail to receive it as the Lord gives it and will be passed by. That is a very scary thing to think about. What do you say? And, and is the Lord passing them by because He doesn't love them? Is the Lord passing them by because He doesn't want them? Or would He pass us by because He doesn't love us? Would He pass us by because He doesn't care about us? Why would He pass us by? 
because we've rejected him and closed our hearts to him. That's the only reason he would ever pass us by. Let us be determined and the power and strength of God not to be passed by. Amen? You know the song that says, while on others you are calling, do not pass me by. Amen? He says a decision will be made by ourselves at this meeting on which side are you going to be found. And I want to ask you the same question this morning. Which side are you going to be found? Are you going to be found on the Lord's side? How many of you want to be found on the Lord's side? Let me see your hands this morning. You're going to open your heart fully to Jesus. You're going to close the door to Satan. You're going to allow him to fully transform you. You're going to lay all on the altar before him. Now, here's what happened. In 1893 at that convention, the leaders of the church received these messages as well. This was their experience. This is A.T. Jones again. He's recounting his experience. It's so powerful. I was so wretched, so completely a captive, and in such bondage that nobody could deliver me but the Lord himself. You ever felt like that before? No one can do anything for you except the Lord. So miserable was I that I could, all I could ever do was have the Lord constantly to comfort me. So poor as to beg from the Lord, so blind that no one but the Lord could cause me to see, so naked that no one could clothe me but the Lord Himself. You will find an experience with the Lord when you reach the place where there is nothing that anyone else can do for you except Him. Your parents can't do anything for you. Your friends can't do anything for you. Your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend can't do anything for you. When you, rec- when you reach that point, you recognize that the righteousness of Christ is the only hope that you have. When you realize that, that's when you'll find it. Amen? When you turn to Him with all your heart because no one else can do anything for you. This is the experience that these people were having. How many of you think this is powerful? How many of you have never heard of this before? You should study the history of our church. Amen? You should understand these things. All the claim that I have is what Jesus has done for me. Can you say amen? But the Lord loved me. When in my wretchedness I cried, He delivered me. When in my misery He comforted me all the way. When in my poverty He gave me riches. And in my blindness He let me see. When I was naked He gave me this garment of righteousness. And so, all I can present All I have to present as that upon which I can enter heaven is just what He has done for me. It's always about that. If that will not pass me, if that will not gain me entrance, He's saying, then I am left out, that should be out, justly, I have no complaint to make. In other words, He says, if I cannot get in by the righteousness of Christ and I am left out of heaven... Do I have anything to complain about? Why? Because it's my own responsibility. It's my own fault, right? It's my own, it's my own doing. But oh, will this garment not entitle me to enter and possess the inheritance? Will it not? What garment is he talking about? The righteousness of Christ and the wedding garment and the parable, Yeah? Ellen White wrote, what about the rest of the church? So the leaders at that meeting accepted the message. But what about the rest of the church? Did they accept it? Well, they did for a time, but notice what she writes. The Lord has revealed to us that the Laodicean church applies to the church at this time. If it applied to the church at this time in 1893, would it apply in 2017? I think so, because we haven't gotten any better than they have since that time, have we? We've got quite a bit, almost exponentially worse, right? And how yet how few have made a practical application of it to themselves. God has wrought for us. We have no complaint to make of heaven. For the richest blessings have been offered us, but our people have been reluctant to accept them. Those who have been so stubborn and rebellious that they would not humble themselves 
to receive the light God has sent and mercy to their souls became so destitute of the Holy Spirit that the Lord could not use them. Unless they are converted, they will never enter the mansions of the blessed. Is she talking about us as well? Are we able to be rebellious and stubborn and expect that God's going to take us to a place where no stubbornness or rebellion exists? We can't expect it. We have to have a transformation. Heavenly agencies have long been awaiting for the human agents, the members of the church, to cooperate with them and their great work to be done. They are waiting for who? They are waiting for you. Isn't that interesting? This was the final appeal of Jones, A.T. Jones, on the last Sabbath of the convention, of the General Conference session. This is what he says. The righteousness of God upon his people is the one thing, the only thing, that can fit up God's people for receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of it. And when that message is received and accepted gladly, God tells you and me, Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Isn't it interesting that the final appeal he made in 1893 that brought great revival to the church is the same theme that we are having in 2017 at GYC? Isn't that interesting? I find it very fascinating. I almost fell out of my chair when I read that paragraph. I thought, my goodness, we are dealing with the same problem that they did. The same problem. And when he says, arise and shine, for the light has come and the glory of God has risen upon thee, he's talking about receiving that message of the righteousness of Christ, that our sins may be covered and we may possess his character, not just preach about it. So the joy of that message was received, and there was great revival. I mean, they had all kinds of, uh, of miracles that were happening in that session. And after that session, once the session ended and they dispersed, over that next several months, they had several camp meetings. And that, um, that experience continued in those camp meetings. Those messages began to be preached, and the people began to receive, experience revival. And it is written that Satan at that time, because revival, reformation, and the beginning of the latter rain was being poured out. I mean, they were experiencing sprinkles of it. They were, they were starting to sense that God was about to pour out his spirit. It was written that Satan feared for his very existence because he saw that God's church was about to arise and become something great, that God was about to shine his glory down upon his people. And so Satan as he always does, went to work. Four strategies, and these are covered in the book. I'm not going to talk about all of them, just one of them today. But four strategies that Satan brought against the church following 1893 to divert the revival that made him fear for his life. The first one was fanatical criticism against the church. These are covered in the book. You can read the book and go through those. Second one, it was succumbing to worldliness in the churches and schools. We're familiar with that, aren't we? Thirdly, was the mistakes of the messengers. And fourthly, continued resistance by some of the 1888 message. We're going to talk about number two. And this is where we're going to get close to the competitive sports. Now notice this. When, that, when he began to implement those strategies, he focused in on the education systems and the churches, but he worked in the colleges to try to turn the revival around negative, and he was actually very successful. <clears throat> Notice this statement from the book. It says, at Battle Creek College, there had been a negative reaction to the revival that had previously taken place. So they had a revival at Battle Creek, but then something shifted and changed. A lack of unity and loyalty among some of the faculty had spread to the students. The condition among the students and the college from a religious standpoint was worse than it had ever been. 
Now, Ellen White, when, I mean, look at that. The religious, the condition of the students in the college from a religious standpoint was worse than it had ever been. That was, I think, W.W. Prescott said that. Isn't that sad? I mean, so they went from great revival to what? To a, a worse than they were before. It reminds you when Jesus tells the story of casting out the spirit and, and uh, the man's house was swept and empty and then seven came back, right? I mean, they were worse. How many of you have had that kind of experience before? Where you've had, you come to GYC, you get a revival, and then you go back home, things start happening, you're back in school, and that revival just goes by the wayside, and you seem to even decline in spirituality from what you were even before you went to that conference and had the revival. How many of you have had that experience? Why was that the case with them, and why is it, does it become the case with us? Because when God does something to stir our hearts, the enemy gets very threatened, he gets very upset, and he works diligently and overwhelmingly to turn us away from the experience that we had to get us to stop doing what we did to have the experience in the first place, such as confession and repentance, etc., and asking for the Spirit of God and the character of God, right? So notice this. Ellen White pinpoints the reason that that revival went sour, okay? You guys with me? All right, check this out. During 1893, this is Ellen White, the grace and mercy of God had abundantly been bestowed upon those in Battle Creek. They had a great experience. But while the youth were being moved upon by the Holy Spirit, they might use the rich blessings of right and progress to greater light, nearly all the educators at Battle Creek had lost their clear spiritual discernment. Because they, and why, why? This is the same for them as it is for us. Listen, because they did not maintain the victory by determined what? Watchfulness. Jesus says, watch and pray. When you have a revival experience in your life, you have to be doubly on guard because the enemy is going to come overwhelmingly like a flood to try to turn that thing around because he wants you back in darkness. So when you leave GYC, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to doubly watch and pray. And if you sense yourself moving in that opposite direction, you'll be able to identify what's happening and turn it back around. Yeah? How easily we can grieve the Holy Spirit by walking contrary to its enabling, sanctifying influence. When the Spirit of God moves your heart to do this or that or to cease from this or that, and we do not yield to that, what do we do? We grieve Him. And that experience of joy and surrender and, and etc., it begins to leave us. We have to maintain it through watchfulness and prayer, yes? Okay. Now, almost, uh, almost to the main point here. Uh, she had great concern. Now, now watch this. Great concern. During the summer of the same year, Church leaders, Ellen White and others, became anxious that the revival and outpouring of the Spirit become stagnant. And, and notice this, as people fell back into worldliness with a lack of interest for missionary work around the world. Check this out. Think about this. When we leave the Spirit of God to engage in the worldliness, worldliness of, of the world, what happens to our interest in saving souls? It just wanes. We have no interest. In fact, we, we want to avoid thinking about it. And so worldliness and missionary service are opposite enemies, yes or no? So if you are not having some kind of a passion for missionary service, and, and, and it doesn't mean that you have to be full-time. I mean, you could be an engineer or a doctor and still be winning souls to the, to the Lord, Right? But if you're not engaging and interested in some type of missionary service, you might want to examine your own heart. If you don't have a passion for souls, you might want to check yourself or let the Lord check you. Amen? She says, if men and women 
have and this is an appeal to you and I as well, if men and women have received increased light, what are they doing to warn men and women who do not know the Lord is coming? How many of you have received great light in your life from the Lord? What are we doing to warn others of the truth that we know, that Jesus is coming soon? What are you doing with your life today that is building up the kingdom of God and preparing those around you for the second coming of Jesus? I'm not talking about being a fanatic and, and, and turning your families off by handing them a piece, three pieces of literature every day. I'm not talking about being crazy and weird, but having a true passion, pleading with God for their souls and doing whatever you can to bring them. She says, who will leave pleasant homes and dear ties of relationship and carry the precious light of truth to lands afar off? Would you answer that call today if the Lord calls you? He calls all of us not to live in comfort, but to live in the power of His Spirit and to be laboring self-sacrificingly for others. She says the worst feature of the iniquity of this day is a form of godliness without the power thereof. Those who profess to have great light are found among the careless and indifferent, and the cause of Christ is wounded in the house of His professed friends. The cause of God has been wounded by His own people. What a heartbreaking thought. Now, here's where we get to the main point. we got ten minutes. That's all I need. Once, so you, you see the experience that the people of God had, yes? 1893, they had great revival That's at the General Conference. That spilled over to the colleges, which then turned sour because they didn't persist in the same thing that brought the revival in the first place, Okay? And Satan worked his strategies to try to get them turned away. Do you see that? All that was necessary to point, make this point. Once the darkness had taken root and the enemy was implementing his strategy, what did he bring to the church to replace the experience of revival, reformation, the Holy Spirit, and missionary service that God had desired for his people? What do you think he brought? Huh? He brought a false gospel, but he brought competitive sports. Let me show you this. Now, I don't have slides for this, but I, I want to show you, I'm going to show you this, and you can read about this in the book. Uh, this is very, very powerful. Check this out. Um, Ellen White, uh, I'm sorry, not Ellen White, but the, um, in 1867... Princeton College was the first to establish rules for American football. That's what came about, uh, Princeton College. You all know Princeton College, right? As the sports programs developed in the schools of the world, it also began to creep into the Adventist colleges, primarily at Battle Creek in the summer of 1893. For example, when a Battle Creek College football team ended one of its games in a tie with a local high school team, because of a last-minute penalty assessed against them, the combative spirit of the world was also readily aroused. Not willing to end in a tie, the college team and its Adventist supporters protested the call vehemently, but to no avail. A rematch was planned, and students went back to their dorms discussing the injustice of the call to those who were unable to attend. So what do you have? American football game taking place at the college. Lots of Adventist students from the college were there in attendance. When the game didn't go the way that they hoped it would, they went crazy. And they lost themselves. And they protested. And they were making fools of themselves over a game. Are you with me? Now watch this. Local newspapers reported on the match and gave special attention to the fierce disagreement at the end. The papers also reported on a special football competition between the American and British students of Battle Creek College. These are Adventist people. 
When the game was played, it was attended by a large number of Adventists and people from the community in Battle Creek. After the British won the game, it was tooted that the paper that the great international fo- uh, is the great international football game. One of the British students sent a copy of the newspaper's game coverage and the reports of boxing message matches being held on campus home to his parents in Australia, who had at great expense sent him to his this hallowed college for a Christian education. The parents were troubled, to say the least, and showed the newspaper articles to Ellen White. Oh, brother, you better not show that to Grandma White, right? So look, these parents had spent a great deal of money. It ain't cheap to go to our schools. Spent a great deal of money sending their kids to this college And what do they find but that they're engaging in these football games and boxing matches on the Adventist campus. And he writes home about it, and he's excited about it. And they're like, what in the world is going on? Listen, when they had had this revival experience, it's incredible that in a matter of a very short time, they went from having a a, a massive revival to being sucked into beating the fire out of each other. I mean, think about it. How, how, how quickly that degradation took place. You with me? And it wasn't long that she was moved to respond, and she wrote a number of things. She, uh, I'll just read you a couple of them here. She says, Has not the playing of games and rewards and the using of boxing glove been educating and training after Satan's direction to lead to the possession of his attributes? What if they could see Jesus, the man of Calvary, looking upon them in sorrow as it was represented to me? She saw Jesus looking with sorrow upon that condition. Things are certainly re- receiving a wrong mold and are counteracting the work of the divine power which has been graciously bestowed. The time is altogether too full of tokens of the coming conflict to be educating the youth in fun and games. Are you guys still hanging with me? Got a little conviction here? It pains my heart to read letters where these exercises are spoken about and where they write such expressions as, oh, we had so much fun, and other such expressions. Now listen to this. This is rebuke right here. Moses had gone up into the mount to receive instruction from the Lord, and the whole congregation should have been in humble attitude before God. But instead of that, they ate and drank and rose up to play. Has there been a similar experience in Battle Creek? Thus Satan and his angels are laying their snares for your souls, and he is working in a certain way upon teachers and pupils to induce them to engage in exercises and amusements which have become intensely absorbing, but which are of a character to strengthen the lower powers and create appetites and passions that will take the lead and counteract most decidedly the operations and working of the Holy Spirit of God upon the human heart. Whoa! That's like overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And so, I I mean, I could read more, but I think you get the point. Let me see if there's anything else I wanted to say. Let me say this. Here's one more quote, and then... I'm going to, uh, that'll be the last one. She wrote this. A period of great light and the outpouring of the Spirit is quite generally followed by a time of great darkness. This is what I just told you. Why? Because Satan had come in with all his deceiving energies to make of none effect the deep movings of the Spirit of God. She writes again, when the students at the school went to their match games and football playing, when they became absorbed in the amusement question, Satan sought a good time to step in and make of none effect the Holy Spirit of God molding and using the human subject. Now listen to this. Had these students allowed the Holy Spirit to use them, 
they would have aroused as living missionaries to work in Christ's lines. You with me? They could not have considered their individual responsibility. They could not have but considered their individual responsibility to work in every way possible in harmony with Christ, their pattern to save souls ready to perish. Instead, they threw wide open the gates and invited the enemy to come in. What did Satan use, dear friends, to counteract the power of the Spirit of God to bring revival to God's people in in, in the early days? He used competitive sports. He used it. I'm not saying that's the only thing he used. There was other distractions, but that's what the subject of the seminar is. And buddy, boy, did it really do a number on God's people. So a question, can it be, could it be, that the very same thing, the very same distraction, the very same attempt by the enemy that hindered them in the fullness of the Spirit is also hindering us today from revival and reformation? What do you think today? If I could say anything to you today about this subject, it is this. You don't need it. There was more missionary work for you to do in the, either in the jungles of the Congo or as a, as a highly affluent efficient, uh, physician in some big city in America. No matter what your profession is, no matter what you do in life, whether you're a physician or, or, or a full-time missionary or a greeter at Walmart, there's enough mission work for you to do to keep your life more than busy until either you die or Jesus comes. And the reality is, those things, these competitive sports, all these things, you don't need them. You do not need them. And they will destroy your experience with the Holy Spirit of God. They will destroy it. So today, God is calling you to a deeper experience with Him. What do you think today? He's calling us to have the experience that they had an even greater. The the good experience that they had, an even greater. He's calling us to recognize a sense of our brokenness and our unworthiness that we may empty ourselves of ourselves and be filled with His fullness. Are you willing to lay down today everything that God calls you to give up and to surrender in this life so that you can follow Him and the path that He has for you? Are you willing to do that today? Are you willing to allow Him to make that change in you? Maybe you say to yourself, yeah, like intellectually, I know that that's what I need to do, but my heart's not there. Ask God to take your heart there. Ask God to give that desire for you, and he will. It will be a process, but you make that decision every day, and God will do it for you. How many of you want to have that rich experience of the fullness of Christ's righteousness that alone can save us and alone can bring the greatest depth of joy and fellowship with Him like nothing else can. Competitive sports will never give you that joy. Competitive sports will never bring uh, a a deep satisfaction to your heart. But serving God self-sacrificingly, serving God and your fellow men unselfishly will do just that. And having a rich relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen? You want that experience today? Amen. How many of you want that? How many of you are willing to lay whatever God calls you to lay down to have it? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would have that experience, O Lord. We would have that rich and beautiful experience that our early church brethren had that was 
a flash, and it didn't last long, but Lord, it was rich while it lasted. And Lord, we would have that experience without going backwards, without being distracted by the worldliness and the things that the enemy is laying in our path. The most popular things in the world, Lord, today are the most unpopular with heaven. And we pray today, Lord, that the Spirit of God would touch our lives, that we would have every day a lessening desire to chase after them and more of a hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And I pray today, Father, that we would find joy in the things that you find joy in, the things that you have for your people, that, uh, Lord, we're not to be boring, humble, unhappy Christians, but we're to be joyful, Father. And there's so many things in this world you've given us that can bring joy to the life. But Lord, more than anything, we want Jesus to dwell within to the fullest and the greatest depth that is humanly possible. We want to have the faith of Jesus today, Lord. Please give us your righteousness as a gift as we open our hearts to you and we close the door to Satan and we confess our sins and seek to have your character and righteousness. This is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.